Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm going to start a series on Ephesians. We know that Ephesians is a little unusual. It may be a circular letter written to the Lycus Valley, including, we assume, Ephesus and the region around. But one of the key elements which Ephesians will add to our understanding is Paul's sense that we are witnessing the clash of two ages. We might sum up the entire book as a depiction, part one, God's breaking into the world, and then part two, breaking into the world through the church. We cannot think here, though, of small c church. This is a church of cosmic proportions with a cosmic impact. And the idea is that the story of creation has not been finished. The great hope at the end of the Old Testament and in many of the prophetic books of the Old Testament was that the God of Israel who had abandoned the temple at the time of the Babylonian exile because of the people's wickedness, that he would return to his temple. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's the opening, you know, when we think of Jesus arriving at the temple. It fills out how that has occurred, and Ephesians especially then, is built upon this idea. And so, first of all, we need to realize the temple in Jerusalem, it wasn't just a big building. In Jewish cosmology, it was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. It was decorated with motifs of the garden, was the gateway to where God dwelt. Its three sections made up a symbolic microcosm. The outer court is the visible world of land and sea. The holy place is the visible heaven, the garden of God. And the holy of holies is the invisible heaven of God. And so in the Jewish worldview, heaven and earth, God's sphere and our sphere interlock And the temple was the place where that happened. So if God was going to come back, God was going to come back to the temple. And so a great deal of New Testament thought theology is predicated on the belief that this promise has come true in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the true temple, in the church, which is the temple being built for the dwelling place of God. Much of the New Testament Christology comes from seeing Jesus as the one. It's, you know, the prophecies of Malachi, Zechariah, Isaiah especially. They're all revolving around cosmic renewal. Isaiah 40 to 45 is thematic with the idea of the creation being restored. And of course this is the entry point of John the Baptist pronouncing the arrival of Jesus is a quotation from Isaiah, the voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God is coming to dwell with his people, get ready. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, Isaiah says, and all flesh shall see it together. 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall not cry, nor shout, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread from the earth and that which comes out of it, he that gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein, the Lord, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you a covenant of the people, a light for the Gentiles. Where is this restoration, salvation taking place? It's an earthly, cosmic salvation. It's not departure. It's renewal. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. Here's the Malachi passage. And he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so woven throughout Jesus' appearance in the Gospels is the fulfillment of this imagery. God has shown up to redeem the world. The point is not destruction of the world, there will be a cleansing, a purging even, but a renewal, a new heaven and a new earth. He has come to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and set them in darkness out of the prison house. Malachi talks about uh, also, he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And of course, there is this imagery of fire. But the fire is not simply a destructive fire, it's a cleansing fire. And Jesus is often depicted then as the one who lights the fire. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring you from your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, bring out the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. It's an earthly congregation brought together. Healing is brought to the blind, to the deaf, and to the nations that are now constituted as a single people. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you. This is Malachi again, 3, 11 to 12. So that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's kingdom come to earth. Sing, O you heavens, Isaiah says, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree there. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. The picture is the earth itself. Paul says, is in groaning, in travail, awaiting the appearing of the sons of God. Your Redeemer, he that formed you from the womb, 
I am the Lord who makes all things. Remember these themes because Paul's going to pick them up in Ephesians and talk about Jesus as the summation of all these things. The one who stretches the heavens alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, is the Redeemer, the one who has come, that Malachi and Isaiah are talking about. For the Jew then, creation is God's good, wonderful world. Certainly it's been spoiled by sin and death, but the point is to rescue the whole creation from that sin and death, and not simply to abandon the creation so that humans can go elsewhere and live. The opening of Ephesians, Paul says that the whole point of what God was doing was to sum up everything in heaven and on earth, in the Messiah, in Christ. The coming together of everything in heaven and earth that Paul's describing, that's temple theology. The temple is now replaced, though, by this living human, the Messiah, the Christ, and his body, the church, right? God's bringing together heaven and earth in one reality through the life of those making up his temple. You are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. And so in Ephesians 2.10, Paul says we're a poem. That's interesting. God's artwork created in the Messiah for the good works which God wants to do. Not simply don't do this, but the idea of an artwork, of image bearing, woven throughout the prophetic sections of scripture. You know, the, the idea is that people use their artistry. It's gone bad to make idols wood and iron turned into idols or images. But humans are to be the true image bearers, the true poem from God, the true artwork, the true image, the one through whom the divine image is channeled. And this is the impact that we have as individual poems, artworks, works of the divine. Cosmic redemption is to be worked out then through the redemption of the body of Christ. Paul says in 3.10 of Ephesians that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. There's the clash. God's plan is to sum up everything in him, things in heavens and things on earth. And so the inheritance is heaven and earth come together. That will be thematic. Think of Isaiah 11.9 The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Paul opens the letter. He prays that the revelation in the Messiah will be what transforms the church individually and collectively. Verse 18 That the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened. Not just by some outward knowledge but by a knowledge that transforms everything. And so verse 1, 3, I'm working backwards. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is, this blessing of heaven has come to earth. And the picture in Ephesians, like that elsewhere, is in the New Testament. We have access to God in Hebrews. We can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can call God Abba, Father. In Romans. 
In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, which he's lavished on us, Paul says, in all wisdom and insight. He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed. The mystery hidden since the foundation of the world is now revealed to us. In what does the mystery consist? Paul describes it as the fullness of the times, the summing up. Chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. How did he do this? This is, this is key. How did he do this thing? How does he inaugurate this thing? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, he put all things, notice the present tense, in subjection to his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He raises Christ from the dead. It's a bodily resurrection. This bodily resurrection is a sign that death is being reversed. It is the sign that the world that is physical, embodied, is being renewed. It pertains then to the undoing of the reign of death. A new power has been unleashed. Chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. That's the problem. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who runs things? Well, this is the one who used to run things. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. So even when we were dead in our transgression, there is an orientation to death that has a grip on us. But we've been released. We've been made alive together with Christ. Present tense. We begin to live out resurrection life now. He raised us up. We are seated with him. In other words, he's not removed from us because we dwell with him. We're seated with him in the sense of an authority, a place of authority in the heavenly places. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. So resurrection power of Christ is now being shared as one age is breaking into another. The age of life, resurrection, renewal is breaking into the old order. Where resurrection power is put into place, the power of death, the orientation to death is undone. And the depiction of Ephesians then is the inauguration of a different world. This is John also. John begins in the beginning, like Genesis. In the beginning was the word. We have recreation through Christ, new creation. As in Luke, a reversal of power in the kingdom of God. Everything will be turned upside down. Ephesians is going to use the language of foundation, a new foundation. Certainly we understand Christ is the new foundation. I think we can kind of trivialize this. We can make this precisely what it's not. There is deliverance from death, from violence, from pagan sacrifice. Resurrection in Ephesians 
is the foundation, is the new life principle bringing heaven to earth. And so we've done a strange thing in the church with resurrection. Among conservatives, we say, oh, well, there's the resurrection. Isn't that nice? Kind of tack that on to the end. There's, oh, the nice miracle. And that nice miracle kind of proves all the good stuff Jesus said. There is a disconnection, an organic disconnection from the resurrection. The resurrection is Christ is bringing those who are captive. There's a host that are brought in his train. That is that this is the inauguration, the resurrection of the world. Both the conservatives and liberals, there's no real connection. In liberalism, they just say, oh, we don't even need it. If they find the body of Jesus, that doesn't matter. Well, it does matter if we understand that salvation is of a very particular kind. The point of the New Testament, the resurrection is a theology of new creation. God affirms the goodness of the created order, following certainly the judgment of corruption. There's a cleansing. But God affirms, this is my world. I am making it over anew, starting with the physical body of Jesus himself. You were dead in your transgressions and sin, but now God has made you alive also, together with Christ, without an understanding of all humankind, tied up as it is into sin and death. Resurrection is not going to make sense. But once we get this, oh, resurrection is salvation. How are you saved? Oh, I accept Jesus in my heart. Oh, it's bigger than that. It is living out this resurrection life. And maybe the best way to get at it is if we're reminded of how cultures of death surround us. Faith and I watched a documentary. It's in Ethiopia. The group there that in southern Ethiopia, they're continual human sacrifices. If the baby, the child at about two, when their teeth start coming in, if the teeth come in at the top, they know it's a bad sign and they have to kill the baby. They have to kill the child. So they drown them or they'll take them out and stuff dirt in their mouth and they rip them out of their parents' arms. The village elders decide, okay, this kid's an evil child. And so the women very often of the tribe will do it. If a child is born out of wedlock, if the village elders don't bless the child, if there are twins, any kind of physical, if there's a cleft lip, it's called mingi. And you have to kill the Mingi. The story that if you see it on Netflix, it's a young man in the tribe. He goes off to school and he realizes this is, you know, and he comes back and he tries to convince his tribe. He does eventually. He convinces them. We don't need to be doing this. But there's about 500,000 people, over 600,000 people actually there in the, that part of Ethiopia that still practice human sacrifice. I don't think this is uncommon. I think it's just a picture of the place from which we've all come and in very much a way that we all dwell. The human culture is always in some way a culture of death. The New Testament tells us though that fear is undone. It is through fear that this world's cultures and religions always operate. You know, we have to dispose of the foreigner. We have to wall them out. We have to put dirt in the mouth of our enemy. We have to slay the Muslim. We have to swear allegiance to our tribe, our nation, our flag. And that kind of violence then is just definitive of 
the principalities and powers of the world. Interestingly, Ephesus was known throughout the world. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis. More than 400 feet long by 200 feet wide, 120 meters. It had 127 marble columns. Each was nearly 60 feet tall. And inside the temple was the fertility goddess, Artemis of the Ephesians. You remember the story in Acts? When they dragged two of Paul's companions into the Colosseum there, you can still go to Ephesus, I understand it, that there, it seats about 24,000 people. And the Colosseum is packed, and Paul then wants to walk in and face these people down. And luckily his friends say, don't do it, Paul, don't go in there because they're going to kill you. The temple of Artemis was the religion, they also their bank, that it was the economy. The economy in many ways, because the local artisans depended upon the temple. They made little gods and would sell them. And that's why they're all mad. Paul had caused this riot when he challenged the god. But Paul caused, and Christianity caused, trouble all over the world, just as it's causing today, I hope, in Ethiopia, but in every culture. Paul at the Areopagus, you know, critiquing the temple culture in Athens, just like he does at Ephesus. And then back in Jerusalem even. This man has been polluting the temple, they say. This is why they're going to crucify Jesus, remember? Because of his blasphemy against the temple. Because he said he's the temple. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And so the question is always, where is God, the living God, to be found? What is sacred? And the church, 221, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There is the sacred. There is the true temple. And in case you missed it, verse 22, filled with temple language, you are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Yahweh is returning to Zion, and this is happening by the spirit through Christ in the body of Christ. And for a first century Jew, the temple was the center of everything. And Paul dares to say that in these little tiny communities, many of which wouldn't have been much bigger than our little group here, that here is the new center of the universe. The new temple is taking shape. God has come to his temple and the cosmos is being restored. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.